0: Hello, everyone, and Merry Christmas, and welcome back to the last episode of the Zach Podcast for 2023. I want to thank you so much for a wonderful year. Everyone who listens, those of you who have donated, who have shared by word of mouth or on social media, uh, just so blessed and so thankful for a great year. had no idea what to expect when we started in mid-January, but it's just surpassed my expectations, and I'm so thankful for what God is doing and looking forward to next year and changes, improvements, and looking forward to what God is going to do in the coming year. Now, the topic for this week might seem a little off as far as the timing, but it's it's really not. We're going to talk about depression, and this is actually a time of the year, of course, it's very festive and we're all singing Joy to the World, but when a lot of people actually have fits or battles with depression— and there's a lot of reasons for that. We won't go into them in this introduction. but uh, So it, it might seem a little bit of a misplaced episode, but I think actually it could be well-timed. And specifically, we're going to examine a psalm, uh, a psalm I believe most likely written by David, and where the psalmist really expresses his battle with a depressed state. And we're going to deal with some of the stigma surrounding depression. I mean, you know, you hear... I, I have heard preachers from pulpits say things like, depression doesn't exist, depression is not real, <laughs> Christians should not be depressed, and, and there's no clarification for exactly what is meant by that. So we're going to start, you know, with the obvious fact that depression is real, and we're going to dispel some of the stigmas around it using Scripture and scriptural examples, And then we're also of course going to get into an analysis of what the bible tells us to do about it and uh, you know i know people personally who struggle with depression some of my greatest christian heroes uh, like spurgeon uh, martin luther and others who really battled with depression anxiety compulsive thoughts and uh, so I, i believe it's endemic i believe that there's a lot of problems i believe that it's something that is you know Human nature is easily afflicted by it, but Christianity has an answer, and it doesn't mean that everybody achieves perfect peace or complete and total victory over that issue. Some people deal with it for their lifetime. Martin Luther was one of those people. Spurgeon was one of those people. And sometimes that that touch of depression, God kind of hobbles us in a way like he did Jacob, and we don't walk the same um but we have learned to rely on Christ in a way that makes us more effective servants and ministers, and we can comfort others with the comfort wherewith we've been comforted. So I hope to give you a good overview of the issue from a Christian perspective, and I hope that it's a help to you as we discuss the topic entitled, The Health of My Countenance, or Christianity and Depression. Thank you again for a great 2023. Looking forward to next year, and we'll jump into this episode the last one of 2023. Enjoy. Psalm 42 in verse 5. He says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Look at verse 11 as well. He repeats the same phrase. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise Him who is the health of my countenance and my God." I taught this a few years ago and I kinda wanted to revisit it as something that I think is really important, especially today when emotional distress, things like depression, anxiety are, um, I think it'd be very safe to say, more rampant than ever before, especially in in clinical terms. There's a lot of reasons why that is and I'm not going to pretend to address it from a medical perspective this morning at all, but um, I think maybe one of the reasons why the book of Psalms, for example, is so popular is because David and others did not withhold from us a knowledge of their downfalls and their depressions. I think a lot of people find Psalms very easy to digest, I would put it that way, and I think part of that is because of, it, because of its emotionalism, right? Um, you can identify with how the author is feeling because you felt that way as well. And I think it's why a book, there's a great book by C.S. Lewis called A Grief Observed. If you haven't read it, you definitely should. And it sat on many a table side of someone who's lost a loved one and essentially what he did is he lost his wife. They married very late in life um, and her name was Joy. And they were made for a very brief time. She was diagnosed with an illness. She, it seemed, miraculously recovered and then she went back in that illness, and then passed away. And essentially, you know, he just kind of languished in depression for a while, and then got out a notebook and just started writing off to the side what his feelings were and working through what he was going through, just taking random notes of his grief, essentially. And it turned into kind of a philosophical expose on depression, as it were. And it's fantastic to see him really work through what we feel in linguistic terms. Like he's giving a vocabulary to our grief. And I think that's why that book is so popular. I think it's the same reason why Psalms is popular. It gives a vocabulary to our frustrations. And I would say this, even our inward and maybe most, I don't know, disguised frustration, which sometimes is with God himself. Um, And I think that There are many people who are more frustrated with God personally than they would like to admit. And they hold Him responsible for certain things. And that old adage of, if God is all-powerful, then how can God be all-good because God does not stop all suffering, that question kind of pops into our mind when we're dealing with a difficulty. But in this psalm, in the 42nd psalm, the author admits his depression openly. And I think that's one of the things I like about David in particular is his willingness to just admit that he's depressed, his willingness to admit, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm mad. And the poetic form kind of lends itself to that, right? I mean, it's why musicians are, I mean, think about like 99% of all songs are love songs, but right? even secular, they're all love songs. Like It's like the only thing that we write about, you know what I mean? And that's kind of interesting, like across genres, that's generally, generally true. But that poetic form kind of lends itself to us expressing these really deep emotions. And so kind of what I want us to do is to examine the author's spirit and to see kind of how he dealt with that. And I think God gives us a lot of clues here, a lot of ideas here, a kind of a prescription, if you will, for how we can help what he calls the health of our countenance. So, the first thing I want to do is I just want to define depression for the sake of our discussion. In verses 5 and 11, we find the same phrase, Art thou cast down? Those four words, Art thou cast down. They're the same Hebrew word in both instances, and it means to sink or to depress. To sink or to depress. The Webster's 1828 dictionary defines depress as to sink or to lower, to deject, deject, excuse me, to make sad as to depress the spirits of our mind. So for the sake of our study this morning, that's kind of how we're going to define depression. We're going to use that general definition, which is a lowering, a depression, a dejection of the spirits, right? So now, again, I'm by no means going to make a commentary or a critique. Come on in. I'm not going to make a commentary or a critique on anxiety or depression from the perspective of a medical professional. I cannot do that. However, I do believe, and listen carefully, that the Bible serves as an authority of the human condition. The Bible serves as an authority of the human condition, and as such, it has a lot to say about depression in a general sense that I believe can be helpful to us. the first thing that we have to do with this, and this is really unfortunate, and this maybe doesn't apply to this room as much as it would um, maybe other classes that are ongoing in the building right now that may be of our more substantive age, um, but we have to kind of address the stigma surrounding depression. And especially this is true within Christian circles. And we might even say within more conservative-minded uh, circles. There are There's a certain... Uh, there's a certain subset of the population that wants to label everything a mental illness that's just stupid like it just doesn't make sense it's it's not possible uh, they want to label everything a disease right but then there's kind of an equal and opposite reaction that says well there's no such thing as mental illness well we have too much evidence to the contrary for that to be true it's just that's just simply false um, and I think that there's a mentality specifically within Christianity that says, and I've heard this personally many, many times from different individuals, that seeks to present depression as only something that can arise out of a sinful state. And I mean someone who's in active, willful sin. That the root of depression is always willful sinfulness. Well, if, if you're saying that depression can only exist because of our sinful condition, you're correct. That's obviously true. But if you're trying to depry to, uh, to describe every instance of a lowering or dejection of spirits as resulting from obvious and willful sin in someone's life, you could not be more wrong. And the narrative of scripture obviously contradicts with that. So we have to be careful. Here's what we like to do, okay? And we do this with problems in our person and problems in our personal relationships is we look for the lowest hanging fruit and we grab it and we say, this is the problem. Well, the problem is sin. It's like, okay, well, I mean, how, (laughs) it couldn't possibly be more specific than that, right? It has to be that general. And the reason we do that is because it gives us a semblance and a feeling of control. So people do this all the time. Well, I tell you what the problem is, it's fill in the blank. And it's of course like a uh, a single oriented problem. It's like, you're wrong by definition. Anytime you think it's like one singular thing, because even if you start with that one singular thing, That thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing, practically speaking. And so I'm not saying that every problem is something that can't be diagnosed. It most definitely can, but we should not oversimplify for the purpose of not wanting to grasp with the complexity of reality. And if you went and you sat down with a medical professional, for example, that, I mean, your, your arm is broken. Like it's literally just your arm's out of socket. And he's like, well, I mean, you know, you've been eating a lot of sugar lately. If you you eating a lot of sugar, I can tell, you know, belly fat and everything. It's like my arm's out of socket, like, but there's Christians who do the same thing. It's like depressed? Well, I mean, what kind of sin? Well, what are you doing? It's like, well, I mean, maybe that's it, but I think maybe we should ask some preliminary questions to kind of get at the root of the issue. So depression can become a sinful state or it can be a result of personal sin. That can be true in any case, but it's not exclusively that. Depression is an emotional condition we might say primarily and our emotions are fickle and they're not easily regulated and I would say that everyone there is no one although there are certain types of people who are more prone to depression and anxiety than others there are people who are higher in negative emotion and that's something that you can actually quantify so you can sit that person down and you can put them through a a fairly standard test and derive whether or not they are somebody that's sensitive to negative emotion, more so than others. Among the people who are more sensitive to negative emotion than others, the vast majority of them are women. That's just true. Women are, we can say as a scientific fact, more subject to negative emotion than men. Therefore, A plus B equals C type thing, they are more subject to depression and anxiety than men. It does not mean men are not subject to depression and anxiety. They are, and in fact, um, they are, we might say, just because the contrast creates a situation where we say, well, I mean, it's," we shouldn't look at that contrast and say, well, it's a women's issue. Like, it's certainly not. And the fact that the author of the psalm is a male should show us that. The fact that many of the examples in the Bible of depressed people, people who have a, experienced a lowering of their spirits, are men, should tell us that. Um, But it is possible to experience a negative emotion and not be in a sinful state and it not be a result of personal iniquity. So for example, the Bible says, be angry and sin not. Anger is a negative emotion. It's not a sinful emotion per se, right? The anger anger of the Lord was kindled. God experiences anger. So anger is not a sinful emotion, but it is a negative emotion. Do we understand the difference? So in this case, depression can be a negative emotion while not being a sinful experience, let's say. Depression is often presented as a position we would not have found ourselves in, here's something I hear all the time, if we had been consistently engaged in practices such as reading our Bible and praying. There's the idea that the person who is spiritually active or constantly pursuing good works that that is a preventative against all types of depression. Well, I would say that it is probably a preventative against depression, generally speaking. Um, I would say that that's kind of obviously true, that the joy of the Lord is our strength, and that's something that you get from communing with God. That's obviously true. I don't think anybody debates that. But to say that the person who walks with God, for example, is immune from depression is a step too far. To say that they cannot experience depression is a step too too far and anecdotally the person's issue might be the fact that they're not reading their bibles and praying but it's an oversimplification of the problem and the solution it's also dangerous for us to suggest that something as unpredictable and subjective as depression can be warded off by the daily practice of reading and prayer when so many people and some directly we find in the biblical narrative who have been incredibly faithful to God have yet experienced depression of spirits. This ignores, for example, I think the most obvious story is the example of Job, who God said, this is a man who's perfect in his generations. This is the complete man. He's the total package. And despite his righteousness, despite him being a just and perfect man, he experienced much emotional anguish, anxieties, frustration, and depression. Here's his statement from Job 6. He says, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. He blames God. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirits. God has shot me with poison darts. That's what he said. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, just kill me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I yet have comfort? Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. So he maintains his righteousness and says, I have not done anything to cause my situation. And yet says, I mean, I'm languished in my spirits. God has shot me with poison arrows and I wish I was dead. That's the only way I will find comfort. So this is obviously a depression and there's no need to explain it away. I've heard many a preacher do this where they contextualize it to the point that we just remove any possibility that Job's actually sad or something. It's like, I mean, clearly he is He's depressed. He's down in spirits, and it's understandable. He just lost everything. I'll say this. Depression can be an appropriate response to your circumstance. Depression can be an appropriate response to your circumstance. If you lose a loved one, you would expect to feel dejected in your spirits. And if you didn't, you'd be worried about yourself you'd say, I think there's something wrong with me. Wait a second, shouldn't you be immune from depression? Shouldn't you be walking in victory in spite of the death of your loved one? We see that there's a category mistake to some extent going on. Depression exists, this is obviously true. Depression exists because sin exists to be sure, but to pretend that all depression is linked to personal sin is simply ignorant or that it's a defect in your Christian character. Now that could be true. That could be true. And we're gonna address that directly in a minute. But that's not always the case. Depression cannot be generalized as a sinful state or a state easily prevented through a careful maintenance of good works. No more than an injured arm could be generalized as either the result of your own carelessness or a failure to exercise. There's too many variables, right? And you need to wade through those to some extent to figure out what's going on. Now, I think the best way to dispel the stigma surrounding depression, anxiety, dejection of spirits is to show that the Bible narrative shows us very faithful, good, obedient people, righteous people who experienced this feeling. Many of our spiritual heroes, as it were, suffered with depression. The first one is Paul. And Paul, it seems, many have made this case, I tend to agree with this, that Paul was an emotional person. I think that's true. I think that you can kind of tell that from his letters. I think that he was somebody, it seems, was prone to negative emotion more so than others. Uh, When he withstands Peter to his face, for example, I'm not saying that it's an overreaction, but perhaps maybe Paul lost his temper a little bit. Some have made that critique. That could be the case. Again, we tend to mythologize Bible characters like everything they did in the narrative is right. <laughs> That's <laughs> clearly wrong. Um, Galatians is very harsh. I wouldn't say overly harsh, but it's very passionate, we might say. First Corinthians, same thing. 2 Corinthians, he comes back and goes, I mean, I did repent. I felt bad. He says, but I don't now, but I felt bad after I wrote it. He was an emotional man. And as being, as an emotional person, I think he struggled more so with emotional issues than others. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.8, he said, We would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were, listen to this, pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. We were pressed out of measure, above strength, and despaired even of life. The phrase we were pressed means to burden, weigh down, or depress. He says their depression was out of measure and above strength. So in a word, it was unbearable. He could not bear his problem. So what was the result of this depression? He says that he despaired. That word means to be utterly at a loss of life. I'm going to lose my life. It's over. It's done. We're dead. We might as well die. Very similar to the way that Job was feeling. So even those who have a tendency to assume the presence of personal sin or spiritual neglect in the person that's experiencing depression, I think would not categorize Paul's depression as such. I don't think people would be like, well, I mean, Paul's obviously dealing with uh, secret personal sin at the moment. And I mean, obviously, you know, he is slacked off in his Bible study and his, his prayers. I mean, he's in an Ephesian jail. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense to be down a little bit, right? You know, that's okay. Like, you're in, in prison. Like, every single moment you have to be singing, you know, Victory in Jesus when you're, you know, waiting on the floor, wailing on a floor in an Ephesian jail. Like, I don't think so. And um, the point being, depression can come from a variety of sources, not all of which are sinful. In Paul's case, it was persecution. I mean, an appropriate response to persecution might be a little bit of depression. That's not unreasonable. Elijah is another famous example. He lost his courage, by the way, after a great victory. Usually people who struggle with negative emotion, a lot of times when something good happens in their life, they kind of necessitate, well, something bad must be coming next. There's kind of that thought press process. There's sometimes, not always, but there's sometimes a connection between negative emotion and volatility, which are actually two different personality traits, but they both are, uh, are closely associated, let's say. And people who are sensitive to negative emotion can also be sensitive to volatility, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And you see this with Elijah. I mean, he just experienced one of the greatest victories in the entire biblical narrative, and then, then, like he just defeated all these prophets of Baal, and then a woman, this the, the queen Jezebel, she says, "I'm going to kill you," and he freaks out and runs away. Like he literally runs away. And the way that the author lays it out in scripture. I think makes it clear that we are supposed to look at this as a mistake. Like, that's pretty clear. And the way that God addresses him, I think, says the same thing. So God comes to him. He's hiding in a cave. God comes to him and says, what doest thou here, Elijah? Good question. What are you doing here? And I think when you are in that cave, when you're in your depressed position, when you've quarantined yourself, isolated yourself, one thing you have to ask yourself is, what are you doing here? What exactly are you doing here? Why are you here? Do you know why you're here? Is there a purpose for you being here? How long are you planning to stay here? You plan to live in this cave for the rest of your life? What exactly are you doing here? There's an implication that you don't have to be here. You don't have to be here, he's telling Elijah. You could be somewhere else. (laughs) You could have stayed where you were. I'm not saying all depression is avoidable, but in some cases we have to ask ourselves. I would say, how much of our experience is something that we have volunteered for. And there are cases where that is true. And that's the case with Elijah. So he says this, Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel had forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So notice, he isolates himself. He focuses on his individual problem, his individual plight. He exaggerates the issue. He, there, there's, there's, I've noticed with depressed Christians that there is this almost desire to run away to the hills and die alone. Well, I just want to buy me a track of land somewhere in the middle of nowhere and go up on top of a hill and avoid this whole mess. It's like, what are you... What are you talking about? So here's one of the problems with that thinking. It implies that the problem in the world isn't contained within your person. You are the problem. The problem is you. And unfortunately, you go with you into the cave. I even I only am left. Not even true. He knows that's not true. Elijah knows that's not true. God says, I've reserved 7,000. I haven't bowed the need to build. You don't think Elijah didn't know that? You don't think Elijah, you think he literally thought he's the only person left? No, he's exaggerating his self importance. I'm the only one left. If I go, the whole thing collapses. Okay, all right, buddy. We get it. You're so important, right? And so, to some extent, what he's doing, think about that. If he's the only one left and he is retreating, what does it mean for Israel? So, he's willing to sacrifice Israel itself for his own self pity? If you're the only one left, Elijah, what are you doing in this cave? If you're the only one, listen to me, standing in between me and pouring out my wrath on on these people. If you're the only person, what are you doing in this cave? He's exaggerating his self importance. None of this is rational, but depression is not rational. It's not rational. And I think that it would be unfair for us to stand harshly in judgment of Elijah, because even the best of men are men at best. But if those two examples don't convince us, I think that the nail in the coffin of the critic of depression is the example of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus was a man and yet fully God. He was the God man, the Son of God. And I think, and I've made this case recently, that we struggle to understand how human he was because we assume, by definition, that humans are flawed. So here's the way to describe Jesus' human condition. He was flawlessly human. He was human, but flawlessly so. That's why the Bible calls him the second Adam. He's a second Adam. And in his flawless state, watch this, he experienced depression of spirits. In a flawless, sinless state, Jesus says, I sorrow even unto death i'm sorrowing even unto death he says my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death tarry ye here watch with me he says the soul of the son of god experienced exceeding sorrow the phrase exceeding sorrowful means grieved all around i'm thankful that jesus was touched with the feeling of the infirmity of depression even in his flawless state All right, so the point being, depression can manifest itself in different forms and come from a variety of sources. The depression of spirits itself is not sin any more than grief or pain is sin. Does that make sense? So I might do something stupid and get into a fight that's sin. The pain that I feel is a consequence of the sin. The pain is not sin. So the reason why you feel depression is because you are sinful to some extent, but then you still have to wrestle with the fact that a flawless human like Jesus experienced depression of spirit. So then that's not even correct, right? It's not even correct. Now, Jesus had a, let's say, a (laughs) limited body. He did not have a glorified body. In his glorified state, we might say that he wouldn't be subject to the same form of depression. But by the way, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Wrestle with that for about 20 minutes. That a limitless God can experience grief. It's incredible. So do we want to just throw a wet blanket on everybody who's experiencing grief and saying, well, obviously you're sinful. It's like, I mean, sorry, are you impugning the very nature of God with sin? God experiences grief as a result of negative situations, negative circumstances, people, other people's sin. So to dismiss depression... Is to ignore the human condition and the inevitability of emotional suffering. All right, now, that does not mean that the reason for my depression is unimportant or unknowable. That is not true. In fact, in many cases, I can know why I'm depressed. We should ask, like the psalmist did, our soul, why art thou cast down? Why art thou cast down? It's a good question to ask yourself. Take what rational part of you you have left in your situation and ask yourself, why are you upset? Sometimes the cause is obvious. A family member passes, you're having financial trouble, you and your spouse are arguing, you're not succeeding at work, etc. In these cases, the source of depression isn't hard to figure out. And in some cases, maybe it isn't even categorized as depression, although that's technically what it is. If your loved one passes away and you feel bad about it, we would classify that as depression. But the brevity of it is something that allows us to just say, well, it's grief, and we draw a distinction. But it's still a depression of spirits. And in that case, we normalize it and say, well, it's perfectly fine. Well, what we mean is it's perfectly understandable relative to the situation. So you just went through a really, really horrible time, and you feel bad about it like, no, duh. We understand that. However, many depressed people are so without an obvious cause. Okay, well, what do you do then? Okay, so to address... I think both the proper response to a known cause and an unknown cause, I think it's beneficial first to narrow things down. And what I want to do is I want to narrow the possible causes of depression down into three categories. And this explanation is not entirely sufficient and it will need more clarification obviously, but it's a good start. Okay. So the three categories we might say of the roots of depression could be these. Number one would be physical. The root of your depression, my depression, or anxiety may be a physical issue. And it could be a health-related issue, a medical issue. Number two, a spiritual issue. I'm not drawing a hard line between those two. I think you guys know me well enough to know that I'm not one who draws a big, bold line between the physical and the spiritual. And then number three, circumstantial. And that's the death of a loved one or something like that. Now, again, um, these are not entirely separate i mean for example they overlap obviously i mean you go through a circumstantial circumstantial issue so you lose your job right so you're upset that you lost your job you got laid off okay well then maybe because you're upset you resort to a sinful habit okay so not only do you have a circumstantial depression but it bleeds over into your spiritual life so now you're stressed out now you're doing something you shouldn't do and maybe for example that's drinking Okay, so you're depressed, you start drinking. It has a spiritual effect on you in relation to God for sure. It also has a physical effect on you. So now, literally, you're taking a depressant, which is what alcohol is. You're taking a depressant in alcohol. Your spirits are down. Your relationship with God is suffering because you're in sin. But also, circumstantially, you're struggling because you just got laid off. So in some cases, you could experience all of these simultaneously. However, when we're looking for the why of depression, I think we understand kind of what we're aiming at. What's the primary underlying cause of my issue? So first, it could be a physical issue. Depression is often a physical problem. An example of this, I think, just showing that this is obviously the case is Nehemiah when he's standing before the king. Um, Nehemiah is before the king, and he's expected to be cheerful. He's expected to, you know, not be downcast in the sight of the king. In fact, if you didn't come around the king with the right expression, I mean, the king could just, like, have you executed right then and there. And so (laughs) Nehemiah Nehemiah comes in. He's upset. He just heard about Jerusalem, the state of his home country. He comes before the king, and he's obviously upset. He's probably trying to hide it. He can't. He's depressed. And so the king says to him, Nehemiah 2.2, why is thy, thy countenance sad? Watch this. Seeing thou art not sick. So you're not sick. He says, if you were sick, you wouldn't be in my presence because you wouldn't risk me getting sick because you're a faithful servant. And you know, people normally, they don't look well because they're, they're sick and you seem down. So, I mean, you don't have a physical issue. The king says, perceptibly, this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. So your heart's sorrowful. Like, obviously, the, the, the most reasonable explanation is that you'd be sick, but you're not sick. So the king rightly assumes that. He assumes that the most obvious reason for somebody not looking well is the fact that they're not feeling well. And I think that for many people, when there's not an obvious cause of their depression, it could very well be, in fact, I'm gonna make the case in a second that it's almost always this case, that it is actually a physical issue. There's a clinical psychologist, Jordan Peterson, and uh, he practiced in many years in Canada, and he dealt with, obviously, a lot of people who were clinically depressed. And he has said time and time again that people who had clinical levels of depression, which is very high. Of the people who say that they're depressed, not the vast majority of them are clinically depressed. These are clinically depressed people. Clinically depressed patients had their depression treated and they were either not having to be treated with medication or able to get off their medication by addressing two things, their sleep habits and specifically what they ate for breakfast. Those two things. Those two things. Because those two things have a huge correlation with your hormonal state throughout the day and your insulin levels, your blood sugar, etc., which can largely affect your mood. So he would deal with those two things. He would do it two ways. One, get up at the same time every day. He said, I don't care when you go to sleep. You go to sleep when you're tired, but you wake up at the same time every day. Your body will regulate itself. You have to get enough sleep. There's a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I believe just finished it a few weeks ago. Fascinating, fascinating, fascinating book. And he talks about the connection between depression and a lack of sleep and the fact that most Americans are underslept. Um, There's a correlation there for sure, and Peterson backs that up. But then secondly, he talks about diet. He recommends that his patients eat a breakfast high in protein and good fats to help regulate their insulin levels. And he said the vast majority of people, listen to this, the vast majority of people their clinical levels of depression can come under the clinical level, can come back underneath clinical levels simply by, he says, specifically changing what you eat for breakfast. So, for example, if I don't know why I'm depressed, maybe I should start with the most obvious thing. Maybe it's not that God hates me and wants me to be miserable, right? Maybe it's not that the universe is just hell-bent on destroying me. Like, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's the fact... That I drink coffee with a lot of sugar in the morning and a couple of donuts on the way to work, and my blood sugar is crazy out of whack, my insulin's out of whack, my hormones are not regulated, so maybe it's self-inflicted. In many cases, that's exactly what it is. And so I should address those two things, and this should not surprise us. And sometimes what Christians do is they spiritualize everything, everything. Not everything is a quote-unquote spiritual issue. I, listen, you should read your Bible every single day, every single day. You should pray every single day. You should all of that. Not every problem you have will be remedied by reading the Bible more. You realize that, right? If you need meniscus surgery, okay, reading, you know, the 23rd Psalm 10 times a day is not going to fix your meniscus. Like it's, so don't act like it's going to. So you're going to the Word of God, oh God, please help me. These Krispy Kremes are so good. I like them too but probably not for breakfast first thing in the morning. And so don't ignore the fact, like Paul said, that we walk around in a body of death. Death is in my body, he said. I have a responsibility to myself and to God to be a good steward of it. It's funny that we understand this with our kids, or if you work with kids, you understand this. You know the number one way to get people to calm down, child or adult, give them something to eat. Like it's actually true. You give them a snack, and even adults will calm down when you give them a snack. It's unbelievable. It's true, I got wives looking at their husbands going, it's true, I just give him a snack and he shuts up. Now we see this with our kids because they're more volatile. So for example, what happens when your toddler doesn't take a nap? It messes them up. It's like, who is this person? And you see it in your kid, but you don't see it in yourself. You're sleep deprived too, and you're subject to the same thing. It's just going on in an adult body. And sometimes we attribute it to, I'm working hard. It's like, you're killing yourself slowly. (laughs) Like, that's what you're doing. Um, What happens when they eat lunch two hours late? They just don't eat at the same time they normally eat. It's like, they go nuts. Well, the same thing happens to us, but of course, we're so sophisticated. We think we need to deprive ourselves of sleep and proper meals. But your body is fickle, and you have to take care of it. So start there The cause is unknown to you. It could be the fact that you work third shift. That's probably why. Like that's a good place to start. Could be you skip breakfast. Could be a genetic inclination that goes back centuries. That's real too. But we start there. All right, so it could be a spiritual problem. Secondly, it could be a physical problem, it could be a spiritual problem. It could be, if it's not a physical issue, that your depression is caused by the chastisement of God because of a perpetual sin in your life that has not been confessed and forsaken. A good example of this is David, Psalm 51. He asked God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. What had he done? He sinned with Bathsheba, covered his sin through murder, was not repentant until the prophet Nathan confronted him months later, nine months later about, and announced that David would lose his son as a result of his sin, and what happens? David goes into a time of sorrow and depression. He refuses to bathe and eat he prays for his child but it dies watch this the chastisement is complete at that point and David knows it David knows the chastisement is over the baby is gone and he knows enough about the character of God to know that he like a good father extends mercy forgiveness and restoration to a penitent heart at the end of the chastisement. So what does he do when he knows the chastisement is over and he knows that he is forgiven? He rises, washes, and eats like that. And his servants go, what? You were just on the floor burying your face in the carpet, crying out to God, you haven't eaten in days. We tell you your child is dead, and you get up? and you wash yourself and you eat? He's like, yeah, because the chastisement is over. And his depression was circumstantial. It was a result of his personal sin and God's reaction to it. So it could be that the loss of my joy is directly related to sinful behavior. That is true. The Holy Spirit convicts and rebukes us of sin. We grieve Him through it. If joy is a fruit of the Spirit, by the way, and our sin has quenched the Spirit, then it could be that our depression is a result of our sinful activity. So what would you do in that case? You would confess, forsake, and find mercy. Confess, forsake, and find mercy. And then what do you do? Then you rise, wash, and eat. Get up. Get up. Take care of yourself. Get up, take care of yourself, and get back to it. But it could also be, maybe this is all we have time for this morning, Depression could also be a circumstantial problem. This is the most obvious. This is easy to distinguish. We won't spend a lot of time here, but um, it could be what David is dealing with in our text. Verses 9 and 10, Albert Barnes believes corresponds to him running away from his own son Absalom. Why art thou disquieted within me? Why are you upset? What is going on? Well, his son has turned against him and is chasing him. His son is, I mean, this is, he's running away from his own son. He's on the run, lost his kingdom, all at the hands of his own Child, sometimes our soul is cast down due to unfortunate or tragic circumstances. And in this case, David had done nothing wrong, directly speaking, although there were parental mistakes there, of course. But his soul is cast down and refuses to be at peace within him. It's no wonder the case, the cause, excuse me, is obvious. David knows exactly why he's depressed. He states the reason in verses 9 and 10. He says, uh, God's forgotten me. I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy. I'm depressed because an enemy is oppressing me. (laughs) Makes sense. But there's a deeper reason why David asks, why art thou cast down, O my soul? I'll finish with this. David mentions a particular word in verses 5 and 11 that help us understand his question. He mentions the word countenance. Countenance. Verse 5, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Verse 11, for I shall yet praise him who is the help of my countenance and my God. Listen to me. What is the countenance? The Hebrew word means the face, but listen to this. It's specific. It means as the part that turns. It's important. It's not just talking about your blank static face. It's your face turning. It's the turning face. What does that mean? Webster's 1828 says, Literally the contents of a body, the outline and extent which constitutes the whole figure or external appearance. Listen to this appropriately the human face, the whole form of the face, or system of features, visage. Then it says, with regard to turning, this application of face or countenance, which seems to be of high antiquity, proceeding probably from the practice of turning away the face to express anger, displeasure, and refusal, a practice still common, but probably universal among rude nations. The opposite conduct would, of course, express favor. The grant of a petition is accompanied with a look directed to the petitioner, the refusal or denial with an averted face. So the countenance is my face turning to or away. It's the part of the face that turns. This is interesting. The Bible uses this type of turning to describe the face many times. It says of Cain that his countenance fell, directional. Laban's countenance was not toward Jacob as before. It was turned away. The Lord promised to lift up the countenance of Aaron, number six. Elisha stared at his servant until it made him uncomfortable, and the author describes it as he settled his countenance steadfastly. He settled it. It was not moving. So when the person is depressed, the countenance is described as fallen or down. A joyful countenance is then described as lifted up. We use the same type of directional uh, adjectives. We say things like, I'm just feeling a little down. What? Down. Down. What 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 does that even mean? It doesn't make sense when you think about it. Or we say, cheer up. Directional. It's interesting. Now, back to David's question. He says, why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted? in me notice that he's talking to himself or kind of he's talking to his soul as if it's a separate part of himself he's compartmentalizing himself and saying okay this is my rational self talking to my emotional self what's wrong with you, you ever heard my dad say that sometimes he puts himself in a corner and says brian what's going on with you same thing ha- same thing's happening here now paul does the same thing in romans 7 he says if i do that which i allow not it is no more i that do it but sin that dwelleth in me he compartmentalizes He understands that his body was infected with sin, but that his true person was not in bondage, and he addressed it as such. So David, in a sense, sits his soul down and asks a rhetorical question. Why do you have to be so down about? Why won't you calm down? The soul says, well, because of the oppression of my enemy. Okay, but what does David say in response? He says, hope thou in God. Him talking to his soul. It's fascinating. Hey, listen to me, soul. Okay, listen to me. Hope thou in God. Would you have some hope? He says, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Whoa, hey soul, you need to have hope. And whether or not you do, I am going to praise him. In spite of how you feel about it, soul, I'm going to praise him. Whoa, I'm going to praise him with the heart, without the heart, with joy, without joy, whether you, soul, participate or not, I'm going to praise him. He says, hope thou in God. David's rational self peeking through the clouds of despair, seeing the light on the other side saying, I shall yet praise Him. That word yet, in spite of my difficulty, I praise Him. In spite of my circumstances, I praise Him. Even though I'm hurting, even though I'm sickly, even though I'm struggling, yet will I praise Him. Why? For the help of His countenance. David's countenance is down, turned away, and dejected. But what does God say, excuse me, what does David say about the countenance of God? He says that the countenance of God is like light. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Psalm 117, he says that the countenance of God is turned towards the righteous. The righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. It was the countenance of God that was David's help when the health of his countenance failed. And if my countenance has fallen, if my countenance is cast down, then watch this, I have to turn it. It's the turning of the countenance that changes things. David looks to God and says, God, will you turn your countenance toward me? Okay, then what do I do? When my soul is down, when my countenance is turned away, I have to compartmentalize myself, take that rational part of me and say, soul, here's what we're about to do. We are going to turn our countenance to God. You can do that. You can do that. You can turn your countenance to the Lord and behold the countenance of God that is turned towards me shining bright with his warm affection. Sometimes the only reason you can smile is because your hope and your praise are in God. Sometimes the only reason your countenance can look healthy despite your gift difficulty is because you have turned it away from your difficulty to him and allowed the light of his countenance to shine brightly upon your pale sorrow. We have to stop. There's a lot more. But it's that idea, right, of turning the countenance away from the one thing into the other thing and realizing, here's the implication, that God's countenance was shining on me the entire time. That God had not turned his face away from me. I had turned my face away from the one from whom comes my help towards my difficulty i even i alone am left they seek to kill me the oppression of my enemy where is my countenance pointed if it's pointed at my problem depression is inevitable but if it is pointed at the one who is sovereign over all problems i realize his light is shedding itself upon me and if his light is on me i can endure any darkness hey guys thanks for listening if you like what you heard Make sure to rate, share, and most importantly, follow the podcast. When you hit the follow button, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. See you in the next episode. God bless.